Good morning, friends. It's a shorter passage today, uh, which is good for me. Uh, As we continue our journey through the letter of 1 John, let me pray and then we'll open up together. Uh, Dear Lord, uh, we do thank you that you speak uh, through your word, uh, that your word is like a great riches to us, uh, that it shows us uh, what you are like and how to live and how we might be saved. And so, Lord, I pray as we reflect on your word today that my words will be faithful to your word. I pray that I will speak the truth clearly. And I pray that by your spirit, you'll convict us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. Today, we're talking about this theme of obedience to God. And if you're a person who values rules, then you probably like the idea of obedience. You know, rules bring clarity and everyone knows what to expect in a given situation. You know, we like order and things just seem to work that much better. If, on the other hand, you value freedom more than you value rules, then you probably look at obedience as a little bit oppressive. You know, it stifles our, you know, spontaneity and our innovation and our relationships. You know, it doesn't take into account, you know, my particular needs and my particular circumstances. And ultimately, obedience is about who we trust and control. So do we really trust God when he calls us to be obedient to him? Do we really believe that that when he commands us to do something, it's actually an act of grace, that he knows what is good for us and he wants to direct us in the right direction? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So we begin in uh, what... 1 John 2, verse 3. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. And as we start to talk about obedience, we need to work out and be very clear about where this sits in God's plan for us. Where does this fit with sin and being saved? Because we live in a merit-based society where we're told, work hard, do good, and you will get your reward. And we often then sort of take that rationale into our Christian life. And so we think, you know, if I do good things, then uh, God will be good to me, both in the present and when I stand before him one day in the future for eternity. But what the passage is saying here is our goodness is actually an outcome of God's grace to us. It's not the means by which we received grace. So what John is talking about in this letter is he's saying, you can be confident about who you are. You can be confident in the present. You can be confident that you're walking in the light. You can be confident that you have fellowship with God, not because of your goodness, but because of what God has done for you. It's really about Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. He stood in our place and paid the price for our sin. That's what makes us right with God. That's the means by which we are saved. And then we live out a saved life. So it's a little bit like my my wedding ring. 
So my wedding ring does not make me saved. Or it does not make me married or saved, for that matter. Uh, that'd be handy. One ring to rule them all. Uh, yeah, I got married when I stood up and I made a contract with Sarah before God and before the federal government of Australia. It's very romantic when you put it like that, isn't it? It was beautiful. But the ring becomes a, becomes a symbol you know, and a sign of my marriage. And, and it's the same with good works. And it's the same with obedience. Obedience is the outcome of what God has done to, for us. So we are saved by grace. And by grace, we live obediently to our Lord and Saviour. So, staying in verse 3, Jesus is the means by which we are saved and by the means by which we know God. But knowing God is not simply an intellectual conviction or a spiritual experience. And this is really significant in this letter because that's part of the issue that these Christians are facing. So as John writes, he's writing partly against these false teachers who want to say to them that your faith, you know, these Christians have got it wrong and that really knowing God is all about having this mystical experience and this special knowledge. And so I think the modern equivalent would be something like the person who feels they've had an experience of God but it then doesn't have a, a great deal of you know, implication for the rest of their life. So it might be that they're in a time of crisis and they, they cried out to God in a moment of prayer and God answered that prayer and was merciful and they then sort of take that to mean, okay, now everything is right between me and God. Uh, or perhaps it's the person who has a car accident out the front of a church and they take that as a sign you know, that God was protecting them in that moment. And so they then sort of project that out into the rest of life. So not only is God for me, that God created me and loved me, but actually everything is well in the world between me and God. And so for that person, they have security and comfort, but no real responsibility. And in reality, it's a false security. So in John's Gospel, he, he tells or retells uh, a story of when Jesus met a crippled man. And so he was uh, sitting uh, before the, this pool of water, uh, hoping to get in that he, he might be healed. And he'd been a cripple for 38 years. So imagine every single day of your life that you are completely dependent on other people. You know, you are a social outcast, humiliated and life is really just about begging for survival. Then imagine Jesus coming along and saying, get up, pick up your mat and walk. I mean, that is one dramatic experience of God. It's about as dramatic as it gets, doesn't it? Yeah, and yet, even in that experience, we shouldn't mistake what he's experienced, that healing, with being saved. And in fact, Jesus finishes that particular story by saying to this man, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
You know, there are some cultures uh, which tend to be more subtle than others. So the British, for example. You know, the, the British, when they say they've had, had a, a, a spot of bad weather, then you should imagine, you know, Shaun the Sheep sort of floating past Big Ben. <laughs> you know, if, on the other hand, uh, you're more of an American persuasion, well, they tend to be a lot less subtle. John... Uh, sits more on the American end of subtlety. Okay, so he he then goes on in verse 4 to say, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. They're pretty harsh words, aren't they? You know, to be calling someone a liar. They are tough words. But he wants to be absolutely unequivocally clear. These people claim to know God. These people claim to be pointing people in the direction to go. They claim to be leading people to heaven, but in reality they are leading people to hell. Because knowing the truth is about recognising our sin separates us from God. It's about confessing that sin and repenting And it's then about following God in obedience, turning away from our sin and turning towards Jesus. And we can be confident that Jesus can forgive us because he died on the cross for our sin. And we can be confident that he will forgive us when we repent because God is faithful to his word. But it also means we now need to live a changed life, turning away from sin and turning towards obedience. And that's only possible by God's grace, isn't it? Because we'd see none of that if it wasn't for God's mercy in opening our eyes to see it in the first place. It's God's grace that helps us see sin and it's God's grace that helps us to see obedience. So in verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So the more we understand God's word, the more we understand the nature of God, and the more we can understand how to love. And that has implications in all sorts of directions. So internally... It shapes the attitudes of our heart. So in the words of Paul, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They're the attitudes that characterize obedience. Outwardly, it shapes our behavior towards God, and it shows us how God wants us to behave towards others. So for those who like a good graph, it has both vertical and horizontal implications. Horizontal in our relationships with each other, vertical our relationships with God. For those who prefer a hug, then it's all about relationships. It's not about rules for rules' sake. This is about how we live in relationship with God and with each other. That's what it means to truly live, to pick up the words of this verse, in him. It's a relationship with the Father, with the Son, 
with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's made possible because it's God's spirit who brings us all together. And so at the beginning of this letter, John uses a similar idea when he talks about our fellowship together and what it means to walk in the light together. It's a unity and a oneness that comes from sharing in God's goodness and grace. But with it also comes a responsibility to honour that unity together. And so if we truly love God, then we'll see obedience as a joy and not just an obligation. And I think it's a joy for at least two reasons. I think firstly, uh, it's a joy because we love to express love for someone in a way that they love. So if I, if I choose Sarah and, and giving flowers, I often use the example of flowers because Sarah is so neglected on the flower front. Um, but uh, if I, I choose to give flowers to Sarah because I know she loves flowers. It's not an issue of whether I value flowers. Uh, I do it because I know what she's like and therefore I know that giving her flowers is an expression of my love to her. So if I apply it to myself and my relationship with God, we'll move away from flowers, we'll go to motorbikes, much more comfortable space. Okay, if you can imagine I'm out on the motorbike one day and uh, I don't have to travel too far to do this. You, know, you come across you know, this beautiful road with a ridiculous speed limit. And I look at that speed limit and I think, you know what, I would be much happier for this corner, the next corner and the one after if I just do my own thing, right? And, but as I look at that speed limit, this is all a very brief process, you can't look for too long because you crash and that's bad. But as I look at that speed limit, the, the process that needs to go through my head isn't, is this a sensible speed limit or not? It could be completely daft. You just don't understand how good my bike is. It could be a completely daft speed limit, but that's not the point. The point is that as a Christian... I'm called to submit to the law of the land. And the law of the land has said this is a speed limit for this perfectly good, slightly wasted bit of road. (laughs) And so I need to show self-control. It's not about benefit or consequence. It's an expression of love and obedience. So it's not whether I'll crash on the other side of the corner or not. That's actually irrelevant. The real question is, do I love God And therefore, will I submit to God in this situation? Uh, So if I look at it that way, I've moved it away from obligation to actually relationships. That speed limit is actually about my relationship with God uh, and a little bit my relationship with the state government. (laughs) The second reason I think that obedience is a joy is because God's word is good for us. And so in the words of our psalmist this morning, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. God's word and being obedient to God isn't about wrecking our life. It's about showing us what it means to truly live in a way that actually works. And and God's very clear about the realities of life. As you open up his words, he's very clear about sin. He's very clear about our struggles and brokenness and temptation. 
But in the midst of that brokenness, it teaches us about grace and mercy. It shows us a different way compared to the world around us. If our world is all about rights, then it shows us that it's all about relationships. And at times that is really tough. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That is tough obedience. But it shows us what it means to live in relationship with God. And most significantly, it shows us how to live in a relationship with God, that it's through his son, Jesus Christ. Because the whole topic of obedience is a lot easier in this room than it is out there in the rest of the week, isn't it? Yeah, you can sit in here and you go, absolutely, I'm committed to obedience uh, until that hits the realities of life. And then often it is so much more difficult. And at that point, we do need to be clear, don't we? We need to be clear about what is true, that God really does know what's best for us, that God really does understand how to get the most out of life. And we need to decide, do we actually trust the wisdom of God? And so often if we look back, we can see that God has been faithful. We can see that when we did trust him, that actually we recognise his wisdom, that it was actually for our good. And if that has been true in the past, then we also need to see that it's true in the future, don't we? It's interesting, in three verses, John has used three different expressions to express this idea of obedience. So keeping his commands, obey his word, live as Jesus did. And the verses that follow this section that we didn't read today... John uh, goes on to talk about one specific example of what it means to be obedient. And so he talks about being obedient in how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you look at the passage, he's got this rather obscure little reference to a new commandment that's not new, but it is new. Uh, And he's talking about uh, uh, an event that happened in, uh, in Jesus' ministry where he said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you grew up in the 70s, you're probably singing a a bit of a song uh, along the lines of that one. Uh, It was a bit daggy then, it's still daggy now, but it's got great words. Uh, But it's not a new commandment to these guys. They've heard it previously, but it's certainly a new commandment that Jesus declared. And John captures the idea again here in verse 10 where he says, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. Now that's the theme we're going to look at uh, more closely in the next chapter. So in chapter 3, uh, it talks all about what it means to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But of course, when it comes to obedience, you can't just pick one passage. Uh, we need to listen to the whole word of God. And that means we need to spend some serious time in God's word. So we can't just pick and choose the bits that we find most convenient. We have to listen to the whole word, to those bits that we find challenging and confronting, as well as to those bits that we find comforting. Over the years, uh, I've done a number of interviews for uh, new staff uh, when I used to work at YouthWorks. Uh, So I was managing a a team of about a, a dozen staff, which means every year you've just sort of got that natural rollover of people. 
And uh, as part of sort of learning to do interviews, I, I did some research on, you know, what are good questions to ask to help me to get to know, uh, you know, this potential new employee and, you know, their, understand their gifts and abilities and experience. And I think the toughest question I ever came across as I was sort of, you know, looking at different things was this one. What is the one question you don't want me to ask you today? I reckon that's just cruelty to animals. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, that is one main question. Uh, but uh, I think it's helpful as we think about obedience in our life because there are some areas, if you're a Christian, where uh, you, you find obedience relatively easy. Uh, you're actually good at obedience in that space. Uh, there, there are other areas which you find difficult but you're fighting the good fight. You're in there and you're working hard to honour God in the way that you live. And then I suspect, if you're anything like me, uh, there are some areas of obedience where you're really not trying that hard, where you really struggle to trust God with that particular area of your life. It might be right at the start. It might be that first step of becoming a Christian of confessing your sin, repenting, and turning back to God. Can I encourage you, if you are convinced that that is true, that Jesus really is Lord, but you are afraid to hand over your life, then can I encourage you to stop procrastinating? God is patient, but he is not patient forever. And God is good, and he wants something good for you. But for others, it might be an issue of a relationship and you know that you are called to be a peacemaker. It might be an issue of loving your wife or husband or children and you know that you have emotionally checked out and you've made it all about you and your perceived needs rather than loving and serving them. It might be honouring God in the way that you approach your work. Uh, Are you honest in your work? Do you work with integrity? Uh, Do you stand up as a Christian in your workplace, not just in speaking about Christ, but also in your ethics and behaviour? Or perhaps it's honouring God with your sexual desires. You know what obedience to God looks like. You know we are called to flee sexual immorality, but you don't want to. It's too tempting. It makes you feel lovable. It feels too good to give up. Whatever the particular issue is, we need to recognise it for ourselves, own it for ourselves, and trust that God actually does know best. We might suffer as a result. If you stand up as a Christian in your workplace, it might actually be bad for your career. But more often, as we seek to be obedient to God, we then receive the benefit of that obedience. It actually works. You know, life works better when we live the way God has created us to be. And if we are authentic in our faith, then we will listen. So the letter of 1 John is all about our confidence as Christians, that we can be confident about our relationship with God, that we can have assurance that we are safe and that we are saved. I think that the 
question of assurance isn't so much can God save me or is God holding on to me? I reckon those two are easy. Of course he can save you and of course he can hold on to you. He's God. That's, that's easy. The harder question is how do I know that God is holding on to me? And John wants to say to his uh, readers here, he's starting to paint a picture for us, we can be confident that our faith is authentic if we confess our sin, if we recognise that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and if we obey his commands. It's not two out of three ain't bad. You know, it's saying this is what characterises the Christian life. Not perfect, but certainly works in progress. And John's words should inspire us to keep going. And as we look at this, we should have confidence. It's not an arrogant confidence. It's not a confidence in my goodness or my wisdom. It's a confidence in God's grace. God has graciously saved me and his commands are gracious to me. And so as we recognise that, that should overflow into a joy and a thankfulness and a hope that we have a certain and secure relationship with our God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the grace uh, that you show us, that you would send your son Jesus to die for us on the cross. And we thank you also for the grace of your commands, that through them you show us how to have life. Uh, life with you, life with each other, uh, life to the full. And so, Lord, I I pray uh, this morning that we will be convicted of that, that we will see the goodness of your commands and we'll see uh, how living for you uh, brings a joy and a peace and a clear hope. So, Lord, convict our hearts that we might live for you more faithfully. Amen. (coughs)